Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 23, Doom Scrolling with Milan. Well, History Against the Grain is back to fill that hag-shaped hole in your hearts. And we are recording live, actually. This is a very special episode. We're recording live from the White House Conference on American History. <laughs> it is not going well, by the way. It is an ugly scene here. It's basically just us and Bill O'Reilly, and then the guy who writes Bill O'Reilly's books. <laughs> And uh, yeah, they're not really interested in what we have to say. How you doing, Chris? Good. I'm excited, though. You know, I was teetering there for a minute considering self-immolation during the John Meacham keynote, but you talked me back from the ledge, my friend. So I'm doing much better now. Thanks. It took a while. This is, this is why we actually took the break. I was just trying to calm Chris down for the last either four <laughs> weeks or six months since we last recorded. I don't know which one it was. <laughs> You know how they seed the clouds so there will be rain? I think somebody seeded the history and the current events conversation so that we'd be outraged enough to, you know, get back up on our horses, as it were, and, and gallop into another hag episode. We thought maybe our break was going to be a, a leisurely time of, you know, of repose and reflection, but it, it didn't really turn out that way, did it? <laughs> no no time for that, no. I mean... The, when I get my soundboard, I'm gonna I'm gonna have my key. That's that's just uh, Al Pacino saying every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. That's 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 what happened to us. We couldn't stay away, but we got good things coming. Fun stuff happening, at least here, not in the actual world, but fun stuff to talk about. And I thought we could start by just talking about we're five weeks. I think we're in week five of our semester now. How has your teaching? How has your approach been? We'll say hagified. What's been the hagification of your of your courses? Well, What's changed? Yeah, now? it's a good question, and and for those of uh, our listeners who also uh, happen to be teachers, you know, it's it's a question worth uh, asking yourself at this point uh, of the new school year, you know, because we've uh, obviously it's not anything like the normal routine of things, but it still gives us an opportunity to reflect on, you know, beyond all the. I guess, strangeness of, of, of remote teaching and, and altered schedules and asynchronous and synchronous and all that kind of stuff, that it, it gives us pause to reflect on the content, you know, the stuff that got us into this business in the first place and how those those right. events that we kind of chronicled over the summer and are still living in, by, by the way, we can't quite refer in the historical past tense yet to things like racial justice, pandemic, uh, wildfires, they're, they're still with us, you know. Still very yeah, real, so yeah. uh, it's still the history outside our window. But, you know, I found myself. Oh, and I should say, by the way, we're going to have teachers back uh, in the in the fall episodes ahead to, to talk about these things. So, uh, mm-hmm, yeah, definitely. if you're if you're listening and you, and you want to chime in and you know, get in touch with us, because we're very interested to know how it's all playing out. But for me, you know, I can say uh It plays out in in different ways, but uh, I was teaching world history again this semester, Josh, as you know, in the the first half. So, you know, we start with the distant past, right? And I was very Mm -hmm. 
inspired, you know, to pay a lot of attention to how I talk to the students about the storytelling frames we use, you know, for something Absolutely, like the yeah. distant past, you know, because it's really more mm-hmm. into, um, you know, where our course begins, archaeology, you know, uh, pale- pale- paleontology. Uh, in other words, it's not the uh, the sort of traditional narrative based on written sources and that, I mean, you know, we, we get there eventually, right? But for, for much of, of this tradition of, of historical writing, you know, all of that was considered what they called prehistory, right? In other words, if it happened before, you know, the invention of writing uh, about 5,000 years ago or so, uh, then it was simply prehistory, which was always, you know, very sort of dismissive, I felt, you know, uh, but uh, it, does, it gives us a chance then to talk with our students about how these narratives get formed and how these constructs, a construct like prehistory, you know, sort of weighs down, you know, the, the subject matter into, you know, very sort of, you know, specific kinds of uh, almost value categories. You know, to say something is prehistory is almost to deny its uh, relevance in some basic way. So, uh, yeah, so my answer is, you know, as we've, we've looked at, at the events of our own time and how historical narratives have either denied or masked or obscured, you know, the meaning of, of the things that are happening outside our window, you know, what, what better opportunity than to begin with the beginning, as it were, you know, of our, our narrative as human beings, our history, and to begin kind of, you know, assessing the ways we've often talked about them. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, to use a very grad school word, problematize civilization, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Talk, you know, that this this thing we call civilization, you know, and, and basically what, what you were saying about prehistory and and how, you know, that it's, it's such a judgment to call this thing prehistory. But the other problem with it is that then, you know, when we talk about now just history, the real stuff, what you're really talking about is like, you know, 15 people in the world who can write now. <laughs> and then once those 15 people know how to write and then they're leaving behind these records and everybody else disappears, right? Because they're not leaving behind written records, so we don't have to think about them. Um, and, you know, it, the thing to kind of understand about those early civilizations, they're just, they're, they're nothing, right? They're barely even uh, around. They're barely making any kind of impact on the, on the globe, certainly, if we're doing world history. They're these, you know, very distinct civilizations in these very particular places where the rest of of the world is still going on like it had largely for the previous you know 190,000 years or something like that um so there is that erasure mm-hmm. that happens when we talk mm-hmm. about civilization and prehistory and, and and history um but yeah I, I think it's really important to especially now talk about um the, the challenge of civilization certainly because we are the uh we are the outcome of a lot of choices made you know even you know, uh, 5,000 years ago, something like that, as these civilizations emerged, they emerged with a bunch of challenges and uh, those challenges haven't been solved. We've changed the challenges. We've addressed various elements of them. But the thing I'm stressing more and more now is that, you know, we don't solve things. We figure out new problems <laughs> in, in, in solving old problems. We figure out new problems and those things just get passed on and on and on and they're still fundamental to, to what we are as a as a uh, these kind of large-scale societies today so connecting that deep past with the present I think is is uh, is useful and you know I was talking this week about collapse and uh, so maybe hit a little close to home for, for this week but uh, so I started out because I, I was talking to students this this morning um, so we were reading about civilizations that collapsed because of environmental degradation because of pandemic disease because of 
political corruption because of economic decline. I said, luckily, we don't need to deal with those things anymore, right? <laughs> and I got stone-faced silence in response to that. So that was uh, not the not the response I was hoping for, but uh, it's still still I had a laugh about it. Yeah, I appreciate your point there about it being, you know, very much a kind of present tense, you know, um, experience. That is uh, the the experience of civilization uh, and finding that these problems, you know, we, we call the episode today Drooms, uh, Doom Scrolling with Milan, and it'll become a little bit clearer how all that connects. But the doom, the doom scrolling part, you know, I mean, you can't help, but right. when you do the early history of civilization in, in its own way, it's a kind of doom scrolling because you're talking about declines and falls and, and you know, wars and iterations of conflict. And, and yet that presents its own opportunity. And, and so, uh, yeah, I'm interested. What, so how, how, how's your teaching going? I made a shocking admission to you yesterday when we talked. I'm having a blast, man. I'm, I'm really enjoying myself. It seems, seems horrible to say, but um, I like engineered this entire semester so that I would get to talk to my students as much as possible, so, whether they want so to or not. So doom scrolling has never been so fun. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah, so uh, I needed that outlet. I need, Especially because we were on hag, hag vacation, I needed the outlet to, to be able to um, you know, talk about history live with and get reactions and thoughts so I've, I've organized all these weekly discussion meetings with with students and uh i'm just i'm having a i'm having a great time with it so uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm the rest of the world's falling apart but I've, i feel like i've i'm regenerated uh, i got all this energy now f for teaching because you know i i find that when i'm just doing purely online stuff and and i'm not having those actual interactions it's really easy for me to kind of check out on the material and just, you know, post the stuff and then move on to the next thing. And this has forced me to uh, to think about, you know, what I want to say each week and, you know, what I want them to think about each week. And then, you know, also because, you know, I'm doing things live, um, I can I can improvise. I can think about, you know, certain things that came up, you know, that day or something like that or something a student says in the discussion I can go off on. And they very quickly realize they can just say like three words and they can get me to go off on a rant. So, you know, there, there's a little manipulation going on there, but, uh, but it's, it's just been, it's been really fun and it, it's helped me kind of fill the, the hole that uh, was made when we lost our classrooms and lost our ability to, to have those on ground classes. So, um, you know, that's not specific. It is kind of specific to HAG because, you know, doing this, this podcast just has me thinking about history in a different way. And I think what I'm able to do in those live discussions is is express, you know, the way we think about history now, which is kill the narrative, kill the traditional narrative at least, um, you know, let other voices out, um, you know, push back against these assumptions that we have, challenge the premises, mm -hmm. as Howard Zinn says, and we're gonna have a little clip of him in, in a little bit, um, and then and then see like live, you know, how the students react to that. And what's interesting is that they're pretty receptive to it. Um, I did this Zoom call with my, my dad's cousin in Israel. Uh, he's a philosopher and he, he does these Zoom calls. I think I was texting you as it was going on actually because it was a very long thing. But he was making the point that you can't change anyone's mind. And uh, it was towards the end of the thing. And I, there's you know, something I could, have, I could have said about that, but it was just like three hours in. But what I was thinking about is if people have a strong point of view, you can't change their mind. But I think we sometimes overestimate how often people actually have a strong point of view. I think a lot of people don't have very strong views about much. Mm. And so, you know, I think we as teachers, we as educators, 
we do have a chance to change minds because we're often talking to people who have not yet formed strong opinions yet. And we can give them things to think about and we can help them, you know, have different point of views. And I'm not saying, you know, this is not indoctrination. I'm not trying to convince them of, of a certain thing, but just to actually confront them with, you know, what's going on and, and force them to kind of make some choices and, and use evidence to support those choices. That's changing minds in, in its own way, even if it's not saying don't vote for Trump because, you know, X, Y and Z. Those guys are hard to, ch- to, to change minds of. But, um, but I think our students are receptive to, to these new ideas. Do you, do you find yourself trying to draw in those you know, sort of current uh, outside your window connections, uh, you know, of the last several months uh, with, what, with what you're formally discussing in class? Is there an interest there, you know, for your students at least to, oh, to yeah. do that? I, I think so. Um, yeah, because I, particularly it's easy in the in the modern world class. You know, we're talking about, uh, I do a, a section on migration, um, which was, I guess, this week. Or last, I don't remember. It was sometime. And, uh, but it's heavily focused on the, on the transatlantic slave trade. And just kind of talking about, you know, what that means, what the trade meant for the globe, not just you know, for the United States, which is how I think a lot of our students think about it, but but how transformative it was on everything that it touched. And, and what that means is obviously the, the lives of enslaved people themselves and how they had to reconstruct their societies in the, in the new world uh, for slaveholders. Um, owning slaves is a corrupting, degrading process in its own right. And so what that does to them, what it does to, you know, African societies uh, that are engaged in the trade, because it's going to once you have a, a you know commodity that has value, people are going to do what it takes to get that commodity, and that often means a lot of warfare amongst West African states. What it means to European consumers who are now making this devil's bargain, where you know their their sugar consumption is worth the the um, uh, enslavement and dehumanization of of human beings, and they're willing to make that bargain. Um, and so you're just kind of getting into all the ways that this trade touches you know every edge of the atlantic ocean and beyond is i think revealing for where we are now right and i I do make that point pretty explicitly that the way the world is now was built during this period of of exploitation and it created a structure that had a bunch of um flaws in it to put it mildly and those flaws have never been Mm -hmm. dealt with and so what we're living in now is the result of these decisions made these choices made these uh sometimes accidents of the past 500 years and at some point we're gonna have to address them uh, because they're they're embedded deep into the structure of of our contemporary societies well i have to tell you my friend you know your your energy is uh is infectious because uh you know it's often the case that what students say they remember about you know about a particular class or experience is you know is the kind of uh, energy that that the the teacher the professor puts out there and uh it seems that what you've done and you can correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like what you've done is you've taken the last four or five months or even six months now i guess and use that as a kind of lever you know to 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 pry open you know a lot of new doors into how you can discuss the subject and you found that exhilarating you know in other words we're being and we're going to talk about this more in a minute but we're being told by some very prominent voices that we should be doing just the opposite right now, that we should be falling back on the old narratives, the stale narratives, if you will, you know, or, or as some yeah. would call them, the patriotic narratives. And, and, and that, that somehow should be 
you know, the uh, the entryway into the past uh, for students living now. But, it, you know, based on what you're saying, it sounds like that's the last thing you want to be doing. I can't imagine. It would be, it'd be so stultifying, so boring. And I, I don't think students want that. I legitimately don't think they do. I think you see them when they see hear something new, right? When they hear a new perspective, you can see them light up a little bit because this is not something that they've thought about before. Um, you know, the, talking about civilization, um, legitimately students, you know, if they had thought about civilization, never thought about the, the potential that this was actually a bad thing. It just never even occurred to them. And so now they're confronting that idea that maybe this was a mistake that, that <laughs> led to all the other mistakes. Um, and I think, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone. I think some people push back more than others. Some people don't want to hear this stuff. Some people don't care regardless. Um, but, you know, as I always joke, if you can just reach one student, uh, then you've done your job. And I think I've reached two students. Mm. So that's, that's mm -hmm. something, right? I doubled my productivity. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, feeling, feeling energized about thinking about history and talking to students about history is, if you don't have that, then, I mean, this, what, what's the point of being in this job? And uh, so, you know, any way I can do to kind of get myself fired up about this stuff is is going to make my classes better, I feel like, right? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, and it's, again, it's inspiring because, you know, I was kidding earlier about doom scrolling through history, but let's face it, sometimes I think we're like, you know, the, the people that work in the morgues, you know, all we see is the dead, you know, uh, yeah. looking back <laughs> and we become kind of, uh, I don't know, desensitized to the great calamities and catastrophes of the past of which there's no, you know, shortage of you know, of, of, of records attesting to, but, uh, you know, I, I think that the key, you know, as I listen to you is that, uh, the point isn't that, that we're just, we're, we're discussing where, you know, we're, we're mucking around in a dead past, you know, but that we're, we're looking for ways to problem solve, you know, the lives we live. And, uh, that's a fundamentally optimistic thing, you know, because I, I tell you, Josh, sometimes I can't tell whether, it's getting harder to tell, in other words, um, whether it's it's tragedy or merely farce that we're being treated to on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, particularly as the American political psyche keeps turning seemingly darker and darker. I think, you know, a, a kind of solution, if you will, a kind of problem-solving, you know, exercise is, is the way you describe your teaching, you know, is to go back into that complicated past, you know, and find real opportunity for some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of revel, res well, I was going to say revolution. I, I meant to say resolution, but that that's, was a... <laughs> I like I like revolution too. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Because that's a fundamentally optimistic uh, proposition. No, I think I think there is optimism, you know, in locating the, the problems of the past, right? And what I mean by problems of the past is the human constructed problems that, that, you know, as I said earlier, are kind of inserted into this system and we still haven't dealt with or... or or, um, you know, responded to that identifying those things to me is an optimistic task because now we know that now we know the challenges and now we understand how we got to where we are. And now we can work on actually facing up to to these problems as opposed to just assuming they're part of the system because they're supposed to be part of the system. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that there is optimism in talking about the bad stuff in, in many ways. And, you know, as we'll, we're going to get to in the next segment, there's just no good that's going to come out of simply closing your eyes, shutting your ears, and uh, and pretending like the world is not happening around us. 
uh, in the way that it is. It's pretty hard to do these days, isn't it? Yeah, well, I know you spent much of our break um, getting in tip-top shape, doing a lot of road work. Uh, you were on, I think, the speed bag, the heavy bag, because you knew you were going to have to come back with a kind of two-fisted, take-them-all-on-again approach, as uh, as our listeners have come to expect of us here on HAG. So, uh, yeah, let's not waste any more time, shall we? Let's get to segment two. All right. Well, in case you didn't recognize uh, the voice, uh, that was not Henry Steele Commager. <laughs> Who the hell is Henry Steele Commager? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, but I thought I should interrupt. <laughs> that, that, I couldn't. I couldn't resist. He was uh, uh, Henry Steele Commager. Was one of those old school uh, historians whose books were in the Book of the Month Club selection and seemed incredibly prolific, you know, uh, uh, historian of his time, uh, probably the apex of mid 20th century, you know, uh, and I, and I, I couldn't help, uh, inserting a little, you know, nerdy history humor there because, uh, (laughs) as I often say with, with Donald Trump, you know, if, if you could prove to me that he's ever, Never mind read a history book, but just cracked open, <laughs> you know, maybe browse the table of contents of a history book. You, you know, I, I would I would have to I don't know, you have to put the smelling salts in front of me or something, because, you know, it's so uh, on the one hand, so cynical, you know, but here is is this figure, this political figure, this person of power, this this leader of of a nation, as it were, you know, who's presuming nevertheless to comment on what uh, you know, you and I do for a living, what a lot of our listeners and, and others do for a living, which is to try to make sense of a very complicated past, you know, by reducing it to a, a few simple, uh, you know, f- uh, sort of theorems, you know, something about you know patriotic history, something about teaching the children of heroes, and and so yeah, for the rest of the uh, the episode today, we're going to take it on, you know, uh, this idea that there is a patriotic uh, way or a patriotic purpose. Uh, to history, especially as it as it concerns the education of young people, and we're going to look at as we often do on Hag, you know, in a kind of uh, a dual lens. You know, first looking at it uh, in the national context here in the United States, but then going more broadly to a global context. And Josh, you're going to uh, give us a, a tour of China's version of patriotic history. My my version of China's version, we'll say. Uh, <laughs> but I, I want to read you uh, a, another quote by by Trump. I don't think it was in that recording because it's it's pretty stunning. He says, for many years now, the radicals have mistaken Americans' Americans' silence for weakness. They're wrong. There's no more powerful force than a parent's love for their children. And patriotic moms and dads are going to demand that their children are no longer fed hateful lies about this country. Patriotic education is a fundamental part of education. Kids should learn these kinds of lessons from the bottom of their hearts, 
while they are very little. So there's our president. Actually, I lied to you because the first part of that <laughs> statement was Donald Trump. The second part, patriotic education is a fundamental part of education, was said by a Chinese mother in Beijing, having just watched her nine-year-old daughter perform a patriotic play in the mm. Beijing Children's Theater. Um, the fact that I could read the, the quotes together and their difference was negligible, if indecipherable, suggests that we're seeing something broader than just a problem in the United States. The patriotic education that Donald Trump refers to is a phrase that was used um, as far back as the 1990s in China um, as part of this idea of you know, creating this new Chinese nationalism and has now become, a, as the mother said, a fundamental part of education and one in which they're trying now to transfer, as we talked about with uh, my brother Benno, uh, they're trying to transfer now to Hong Kong and then also um, impose upon various non-Han ethnicities across China as well. Um, so this stuff is, it's, you know, it's one thing for Trump to say these things, but there's a real danger to this stuff. It feeds into a broader kind of ethno-nationalist history and, and, and kind of social organization that has become all too common in our world today. Exactly. And I, I, when I said earlier, it's getting harder to tell the difference between tragedy and farce. You know, when a, when a U.S. senator, for example, you know, threatens to make the teaching of the 1619 Project something that we've talked a lot about on this mm -hmm. program, uh, to make, somehow making that a, a some sort of federal crime, you know, as it were. Or, you know, when the president presumes to speak about, you know, the, the, the lies of, of history and, you know, patriotism and that sort of thing. It's hard to know whether we should just, you know, laugh it off, you know, or that we should gird up, you know. And I, and I think you and I have decided, at least in doing the podcast, that it's the latter, that we have to take this seriously. Uh, that it's not just farce, however farcical it is, it, as you pointed out, does have, you know, real consequences for the kind of political mentality, let's say, of a, of a, of a citizenry, you know, of, of a, you know, a kind of justification, let's say, behind certain kinds of power, you know, the use of power or whatnot, which we've seen uh, certainly in China. Uh, but also here in the United States this past summer, you know, justifying these kinds of things with some sort of appeal, you know, to the past. And so what, what historians often call a usable past often becomes, you know, a kind of uh, certainly a kind of weapon in the hands of power. You know, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that you're probably not going to be doing the patriotic education that Donald Trump is asking for. <laughs> so I was kidding around about uh, Henry Steele, the late Henry Steele Commager, but, you know, he was really sort of emblematic of a certain kind of historical writing, you know, a lot of uh, political history, a consensus history about the American nation and that sort of thing. Uh, but the, the historian that Trump actually mentioned in his uh, screed, you know, against, uh, you know, what he considers the, you know, the outrageous uh, and false teachings of, of, uh, of history teachers these days was uh, Howard Zinn. And, you know, a lot of our listeners probably know about Howard Zinn because his People's History of the United States, People's History of America was uh, quite a popular, you know, seller outside of academia in, in the 80s and 90s and since. And, and, uh, and he hit a nerve with a lot of folks, you know, by going off script from that uh, more sort of nation state oriented consensus history. Uh, and so I thought we could listen to what uh, Howard Zinn, the late Howard Zinn, had to say back in, I think it's 2008, 
uh, about why he feels that this sort of history is actually needed. I believe you should be honest with kids at any age. You may tell them the story differently and more simply, but I don't, I don't think you should tell them uh, untruths, whether it's about Columbus or about George Washington. The heroes are military heroes. When you look at the statues, right, the, the statues on uh, city squares are, are the statues of military heroes, you see. Uh, and I think we ought to uh, examine that premise that our great heroes are military heroes in war and, and look at other heroes. Young people want icons and they want people they can admire and respect and look up to. And, and so military heroes fill the bill. But there are other heroes that young people can look up to. And they can look up people who are against war. They can have Mark Twain as a hero who spoke out against the Philippines War. They can have Helen Keller as a hero who spoke out against World War I and Emma Goldman as a hero. They can have Fannie Lou Hamer as a, as a hero and Bob Moses as a hero. The people in the civil rights, they are, they are heroes. They can have Ron Kovic as a hero, the Vietnam veteran who came back and then opposed the war. We have so many heroes. There's Muhammad Ali who refused to fight in Vietnam. How better a hero can you have than him? So there, there, I think there are ways of satisfying the young people's need for uh, icons, for models, for uh, yeah, people who protested and, and people who fought for equality and, and justice and won. I can't think of anything more important we can do in education than, than to get students to, to challenge these fundamental premises uh, which keep us inside a certain box and, and we want people to think outside of that because if they don't, things will never, never change. If they don't think outside that box, if they don't challenge the premises, then we'll go on as we have been going on and then we'll have the kind of world that we have had so far, which is not good enough, right? A world of war and, and hunger and disease and inequality and racism and sexism, we don't know. We want to move away from that, and so we have to re-examine, you know, these premises. So it's great to hear uh, Howard Zinn, you know, address the very points that, that Donald Trump will later, you know, sort of cherry pick in condemning Zinn. Again, I, I doubt very seriously whether Trump is has read a single page of the people's history. Uh, but, it, but it doesn't really matter because at this point, you know, we're talking about a kind of culture war battle over whose narrative and, and what narrative. And that's something we're going to talk more about in this episode. But, you know, it's worth stating, stating, I think, that both Trump and Zinn are talking about how do we approach, you know, history and certainly in Howard Zinn's case, how do we approach the, the complexities and contradictions of history, you know, where, where the teaching of young people is concerned because most most Americans first come into uh, history, as it were, in school, right? You know, and in first in, in grade school, and then later on uh, high school, and, and maybe college, uh, and so it becomes this sort of uh, you know this battleground over over you know the the narrative, as it were, the historical narrative. And and Zinn's point, you know, about you know, look, if we're going to laden history with heroes you know, as exemplars for young people to to identify with or to be inspired by, 
then we shouldn't so narrowly define, at the very least, we shouldn't so narrowly define what that actually means and who qualifies. And so I really love the fact that he sort of turns that consensus nation state narrative that that all histories must be military men mm-hmm. you know uh, all those confederate statues were, were confederate military people for the most part you know um and turns that on its head and says well what about the people that you know that that um that rally against those folks that rally against those wars and and that power that use of power aren't they aren't they doing something essentially heroic uh as as well and so you know what what trump makes uh, you know reduces to a kind of simple formula you know patriotism you know if we're going to be serious about it we have to we have to at the very least take a harder look at what do we mean you know by that does does dissent you know also qualify then as patriotism and it gets back i think josh to what you're talking about earlier in the context of your classes you know we need definitions and we and more than that conversations around these foundational you know, core concepts that have relevance to the lives of people today. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's absolutely right. And I also really liked what he said about just challenging the premise, right? That it's really important to just not have students accepting, you know, just the same set of basic assumptions that they came in with that you, you know, you want to challenge them and that what you're sometimes going to find is that they want to be challenged, right? They want to have these, these assumptions contested somewhat because they never even, you know, I think I said earlier, they never really, really held those assumptions very, uh, you know, seriously in the first place. They were just things they had heard and they, they kind of latched onto them. But it, it, it's so fundamentally important as not just for teaching history, but for just teaching people to be good people is to mm-hmm. challenge the premises that, that are uh, being taught to them. Um, that should be part of education, not just creating these, um, you know, these people who can recite the Declaration of Independence, something like that. There's got to be some actual learning and, and challenging going on. Well, I really love that you picked up on that idea of, of Howard Zinn's of you know challenging the premise of the narrative. You know what is the, what is the fundamental fundamental assumption upon which this story is based? Uh, because ultimately, that's going to determine a lot about the kind of story we get. Uh, you know, sometimes I feel like we're too late if we take it on only at the outcome or at the uh, yeah, sort of the end. If we catch the story, even at the midpoint, maybe we're too late because we've already accepted whatever premise, you know, that the, the storyteller has laid down. So here's what I uh, propose for the rest of our, our episode here today is that we take a look at those fundamental assumptions, that, that, that unexamined premise, if you will, that upon which U.S. history, uh, the, the, the sort of patriotic history, that, that Donald Trump is talking about, and and for your part, in the case of China, uh, that the Chinese uh, you know nationalist leaders are also talking about uh, what 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 is that unexamined premise or assumption that then un, uh, sort of gives birth to the whole rest of the story? Because as it turns out, we can be pretty clear, I think, Josh, in identifying you know uh, how these histories, how these stories. How they how they get constructed, how they get made, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's worth asking these questions um, instead of you know, as we said, accepting the premise of of these um, of these stories at their face value. Exactly. I mean, once you do that, if if I'm, I hope I'm being clear, but I mean, what, 
Once you do that, if you accept the premise, you're basically screwed because that means you're going to have to accept the conclusions that follow from the premise, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's too late at that point uh, to be arguing about some uh, you know, later point of history because you've already accepted the essential packaging, you know, the, the overall um, sort of framing uh, of that story. So, uh, look, if we look at what, what Donald Trump calls this sort of patriotic history of America, we can go right to ground zero, you know, when this story was created. Because, uh, you know, it's always sort of implied that this was, you know, sent as manna from heaven. You know, mm-hmm. the great American story, you know, was sent with providential blessing, you know, writ in holy script or something. And I'm only I'm only exaggerating a little bit. Right. Because it was cloaked in a kind of providential meaning. Everybody's heard the phrase manifest destiny. Yeah. You know, which was this idea that much like the Israelites, you know, the American nation had a special destiny, uh, a promised land, as it were. And so we need to go back and we need to unpack that. And, and I'm not going to do a lecture or anything like that, but I can get us back to ground zero, I think, at the moment. And the reason for that fundamental premise to be then the bedrock of the American national uh, story. And, and it starts with this idea, you know, the nation. Look, the 13 colonies uh, had never been a nation, right? The United right. States hadn't existed throughout that colonial past. And even after the American Revolution and the writing of the Constitution, remember in the preamble to the Constitution, the framers write uh, to create a more perfect union. Well, you know, uh, by any other name, they're talking about creating uh, a tangible sense of nationhood, that there was Mm -hmm. something now that kept those former colonies together, a greater identity, uh, a unity, you know, out of many one, e pluribus unum creating that that unity and so they understood it the, by they i mean the you know the power brokers of the day those who we sometimes call framers or in the patriotic sort of uh, heaven-sent story the founding fathers you know like let's see abraham and noah and who are some of the others yeah well okay if Adam. you're going to sanctify it that way it becomes pretty hard down the road to take issue. I mean, what are you going to do? Argue with Noah? I mean, George Washington, you know, um, you're you're creating not only historical sin, but a religious sin at that point. So in the creation of a it was with a kind of sanctity, this becomes a very deliberate effort. And I had mentioned on an earlier episode, a guy by the name of Mason Weems, only our most hardcore listeners will recall Mm -hmm. Mason Weems, deep cut, hag deep, deep cut there. He was the author of a book called The Life of Washington. And this was just a, a short time after Washington died, uh, the, after the turn of the century, the, the 1800s. Uh, and he did something kind of brilliant, really, as a, as a sort of uh, marketer. He realized that the country, as it were, was not unified. There was no sort of central identity yet. These former colonies were still living in fairly parochial and local, you know, um, forms. And that so to make somebody from Carolina identify with somebody from Massachusetts who might identify with somebody from, you know, Pennsylvania or something, that there would have to be a kind of common frame of reference. And so the life of Washington was to erect now a kind of a first national hero, as it were, for this country that everybody, mm-hmm. uh, no matter whether they, you know, were old stock, new stock, southern, northern, middle, 
you know, they, they could uh, they could relate to. And, and over several episodes, more than a dozen, or excuse me, editions of his book. He wasn't a podcaster yet. Editions of his book. He would have been, <laughs> believe me. Uh, editions of his book, which became a kind of uh, bestseller at the time. Now, to contextualize this for our audience again, we're talking about an age technologically moving into the 1800s now of rapid innovation and development in printing, among other things. So you get a steam-powered cylindrical printing press that's capable of generating great volumes now of printed material. And it's going to be through the, uh, you know, through, through the, the kind of technological prowess of the early republic, that is the, the period we call the early republic, the 1810s and 1820s, that uh, the ability to manufacture something like public opinion and public identity and fame. If, you, if for some reason you hadn't heard of George Washington before uh, or some other figure, you would now simply because in the newspapers and tracts and pamphlets uh, and full volumes, sometimes multi-volume histories of America that are being produced, you know, sort of saturating the reading public, if you will, um, that something like a public identity uh, becomes possible so that people from Carolina to Massachusetts, you know, from New England to the frontier West could have a kind of common frame of reference and a common discourse to understand, among other things now, what the meaning of this nation is. Because, uh, as you know, and you can speak to, Josh, the nation state itself was a brand new invention of history, right? In this time, absolutely. I I uh, got a, a desk copy of a book on East Asian history the other day. This this will this will connect in a second, but uh, I got a desk copy of this this textbook on East Asian history because I'm looking for you know some other stuff I could assign. And uh, I was reading just the introduction, and it kept mentioning the four nations of East Asia: <laughs> uh, Japan, China, Vietnam, and Korea. I'm like, this is. You know, hundreds of years before any kind of nations exist or any kind of national identity, and you, you know, right in the introduction, you've kind of reified these ideas that these are just yes. these fundamental things. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, the, challenge the premise. One of the first premises we need to challenge is just the, the idea of this immutable nation. Yes. Uh, and uh, but that's not what this kind of writing is supposed to do, right? The, the entire point of something like Ween's book and these kind of patriotic histories is to take the nation, make it seem eternal and, yes. and unchangeable. And, and, uh, and sanctify it, yeah. And sanctify it, yeah. It's simply a given that we've inherited in some way. But as you're right, and as historians we know that's not the case. Just as the nation state as a, as a modern political geographic entity had to be invented, so then did the history of that nation form have to be uh, invented. In other words, it needed a gospel to somehow authenticate it. And part of the uh, the invention of that gospel would be for writers and historians like Mason Weems and some others I'll mention here, you know, to weave together the kind of, uh, you know, the gospel account, if you will, a kind of scriptural maybe account, uh, an implotment even, you know, of a story that was rather romantic in that it was about triumph. It was a triumphal narrative with good, you know, discernible good guys and, and you know, villains and that sort of thing. So it really borrowed from the tropes of other kinds of storytelling, you know, and, and as you point out, had to do a fair amount of retrofitting and re-engineering of the past 
in order for that past to ultimately support the deliverance of that nation. So, you know, the writers of this history, in, in the case of America, but as we heard Vincent Leung talking about it in an earlier episode in, in China, as far back as, you know, the sort of early Confucian historians and, and storytellers and such had to kind of invent a past that would then give credence to and authenticate and legitimize, in this case, uh, the nation state, maybe in ancient China, it was, you know, the empire, the, the emperor or something. Mm. Um, so we have George Bancroft in 1834, you know, who's this erudite, well-educated, politically minded figure in the early republic, uh, the United States, who's going to create a multi-volume history now called the history of the United States from the discovery of the continent and that was in 1834, Bancroft's History of the United States, that would essentially now create that kind of scriptural or gospel tome of legitimizing and rationalizing the current iteration of the American nation state as it had been, in effect, born of the early colonies. And there's a lot of organic sort of language because among other things, you know, the birth of the nation state coincides with the rise of romanticism in art and philosophy and such. And so there's a lot of organic, organic kind of, um, you know, rhetoric and language and framing of things. So America is born as a kind of providential birth, really, because among other things, you get the second great awakening going on in which a more sort of liberal Christian rebirth that you could, you could attain salvation, right, by living you know, a moral life and being reborn again spiritually. And so all of this stuff that's happening in the culture of the time is framing the history that becomes the template patriotic history. Because among other things, and I had a quote here from um, from George Washington, and I, and I, I went past it, but um, Washington says uh, that what the country needs is for its people, the more homogeneous, he says, our citizens can be made, the greater our prospects of permanent union. So, Are you sure that wasn't <laughs> Xi Jinping? <laughs> we should have done it, right? We should have. Is it, yeah. is it Xi Jinping or George Washington? Uh, because there's a couple things discernible here, right? Is First of all, there's, there's an implied fear of the people by George Washington. Unless the, the uh, citizens can be made homogeneous, that there will be a threat to the union. Uh, and the second part being a fear of foreign influence, that unless we create this homogeneity in American, you know, uh, decidedly American terms, that the germ of foreign influence can find its way, not unlike, you know, the coronavirus or something, you know, mm -hmm. into the American body politic. And so from the beginning, the idea was to create a mostly political narrative. You know, I mean, this this historical gospel, this historical scripture will be mostly a political narrative oriented around great figures like George Washington, who are sovereignty figures. And it will be essentially a kind of sovereignty story. So when Bancroft writes his multi-volume history, it's really a story that explains how American national sovereignty grows out of that colonial past, has its own providential birth, how the nation, in effect, is reborn from the corruption of colonial England and, and, and uh, of Europe generally. So there is a kind of nativist element here. Um, I'll tell you, a writer named Emma Williams did an abridged... Someone said, this is great, George Bancroft, but we need, a, <laughs> we need an abridged version for, you know, for schools, right? And so Emma Williams, a woman 
historian did an abridged version of the U.S. history, and uh, it was released in 1846, that kind of uh, distilled a lot of what Bancroft had been writing down into, and I kid you not, really a kind of a question and answer format, a kind of catechism, if you will, of, mm. of, of, of learning, you know, dates and events and names of great American leaders that ultimately would be the essential what the essential body of this history now that would legitimize and justify and um, sanctify the American nation. So you would learn about the battles of the revolution and Washington's victories and uh, and then it would expand maybe into great inventions, you know, and the great invent, you know, the Fulton steamboat or something like that, you know, and it was all pretty much built around a kind of patriarchal understanding of the past, great men doing great things, usually political, military, but sometimes economic and technological, you know, that really then define what it meant, not only to know American history, but to explain who we were supposed to be, even if you weren't a man, or if you weren't a white male, uh, there was no question that you were to assimilate in some basic way to this story. Um, it was a story created by white historians to tell the story of national sovereignty. But, you know, in, in, in the case of what I've been doing recently, we'll talk about it more in future episodes, you know, where you're trying to identify black lives in the past. Well, you know, most black people stood outside that frame of sovereignty, Josh. And so, you know, in a basic way, stood outside the frame of the story itself, you know. And so when you were in when school, uh, you were probably, uh, you know, um, if you were privileged enough to have schooling, because there's no public schooling yet by mid-century, you know, the mid-1800s, you're still paying for tutors, you're paying for private schooling, you're probably white, you're probably privileged in that sense. And the McGuffey reader that you get, you know, the blueback speller, you know, I mean, Noah Webster created the blueback speller as a uniquely American form of identity. You know, uh, the guy that created the dictionary was trying to create an American language, an American lexicon, a vernacular of American speak, separate and apart from English speak. And so, too, then did the McGuffey Reader and the Blueback Speller also contain these historical vignettes that were meant to separate American history, in other words, you know, white male sovereignty history, from the more corrupted forms, say, of, of Europe. And, and that na what we call nativism, that idea of a kind of uh, you know, ethnocentric understanding of what the American seed really is. You know, they didn't even have a, a very uh, sophisticated kind of pseudo-scientific way of approaching this yet. It's all done in, in sort of cultural forms, you know, to orient around these ideas of a certain kind of Christian view, a certain kind of male authority, a certain kind of identity, uh, in other words. And, uh, you know, for black folks, well, you know, they're just not in the frame. You know, they're not in the story. And so even as they come to be acquainted with the story, they find themselves essentially missing because the story from the beginning is built around silences and omissions, you know, and, 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 and that sort of thing. So, so I guess my point is, Josh, here in today's episode is to see this as a constructed um narrative that creates its own reality really you know on behalf of those who wield power and define what it means therefore 
to be living, you know, in a, in a sovereign system known as the nation state, to, to be loyal, to be obedient, to be, in other words, as Donald Trump would have it, patriotic to that basic ideal. And, and to see the, the omissions and the silences, well, to not see them, frankly, you know, to dismiss them as worthy uh, even of mention in that storytelling form. So uh, the fact that all of this has a kind of provenance, you know, a kind of uh, uh, like any invention, a kind of, you know, stamp on it of, of made in this case, I was going to say made in China, but you're going to get to the made in China version. Yeah, right. Made, you know, made in New England version or made in New York version of this story. Uh, and it has chapters added to it, of course, over time. But those chapters uh, all essentially end up doing the work of the fundamental premise that we've explored here and are, are talking about in today's episode. So that even later, when you get a more progressive effort to include black lives, you know, or immigrants' lives, or working people's lives, you know, outside that narrower frame of sovereignty, they get added in a way to, in effect, justify, nevertheless, that mm -hmm. frame of sovereignty that was created with that specific purpose early on. You, you started out talking about the, the quote-unquote founding fathers and this kind of religious, you know, almost references that that's making, like, you know, these these guys who came from on high, they came, you know, George Washington came down from the mountain with the... <laughs> you know, with the United States, the, the you know, tablets, arms and like that. Yes. <laughs> but, but George Bancroft is known as the father of American history, right? Isn't yes. that, so he even gets, yes. so there's like a, there's a history to this history that even, you know, in its own right is, is being mythologized and absolutely. Um, and, and turned into this, this thing. Uh, I was thinking as I was trying to go to sleep last night, this is unfortunately too often, but, uh, you know, the, the traditional narrative as we're now calling it. And I, I think of it, you know, with capital T, capital N, traditional narrative um there's interesting stories that can be told in the traditional narrative right and th sure. there's been tons of great books you know written within that traditional narrative but i, I was thinking about it as like it's almost like a freeway with no off-ramps <laughs> where nice. you know you can see you can see things from that freeway right? you can watch things go by as but you can't get off and explore anything beyond that and it's always going in one direction right so mm -hmm. even like the the interesting stories being told within the traditional narrative they're ultimately just serving that narrative. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of our great historians, a lot of our great American historians, they can write interesting things, they can say interesting things, but you do also get that sense that, that they're not, they're not challenging the premises, premises, mm -hmm. it's not challenging the premise. Let me say it in a word that I can actually yeah. pronounce. They're not challenging the mm -hmm. premise in any fundamental way. And they're just driving on that same freeway looking at the same sites. Yeah, they're not they're not getting off uh they're not getting off that main interstate are they to, to dis uh, discover those side roads, you know, or the old highways, you know, that led through, you know, the now forgotten towns like Route 66. I'm so glad you came up with that that sort of metaphor because I just read a piece about, you know, the the sort of lapsing of of that fabled Route 66, mm -hmm. you know, and and you might suggest, "Hey, you might discover something about America by going down those kinds of roads." Right. Yeah, but that's just shut off. And so it, it's like it's almost dependent upon what you happen to notice as you're driving by at 75 miles an hour. Like that becomes your story. But but it's still such a limiting version of, of what history can be and, and whose stories can get told told and, um, and and what information can even get out into the into the public sphere. So yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. And you know what? Before we get into your part on the made made in China version of this kind of history, I'll just want to you know point out that the reason why. You and I end up doing all our uh, training in the off season, get our muscles finely tuned, fast twitch 
responses, <laughs> you know, working on working on the speed bag and doing our, our rope work is that, you know, what we're up against, you know, with the John Meachams and I would even say the David Blights, you know, is that they're doing they're wonderful writers, they're beguiling writers, but they're doing histories that are firmly you know, in the allotted lanes of that familiar interstate. Mm -hmm. uh, and so even when they, a guy like David Blight, you know, wants to talk about some of the discordant notes of America's past, like slavery, he's still doing it within the narrative frame of that well-traveled road, isn't he? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. We will not let our minds be used. We will not let our minds be used in this wicked world. We will band together. We will make the human family one once more. We will live in a land teeming with prosperity. So tell us about the Made in China version, will you? All right, let's move on to our last segment here, segment three. And I'm not going to go as deep into this as Chris just did with American history because I recognize not being a specialist here. I, I want to be respectful of those who know more about this than I do. But I just had some thoughts that, that kind of centered around this current controversy, and you probably asked which controversy is current right now, the one that's most important to me of all, and that's the controversy about the Disney movie Milan, which recently was released to streaming services at a hefty, hefty price. Because I think Milan and, and the stories about Milan and the story of Milan itself connects back to a lot of the themes we've been talking about on this episode, but also, of course, many of our other episodes as well. Um, you know, there's the obvious controversy, which is started with the fact that the lead actress's uh, lead actress decided to go on social media and uh, show her support for Hong Kong police in their pretty brutal efforts to uh, tamp down democracy activists in Hong Kong. Uh, that was a kind of an unforced error on her part, which also got some negative attention on the film well before it was well before it was released. And then Disney made another pretty unforced error when it turns out that some eagle-eyed watchers realized that at the end of the credits, there was uh, their, their kind of thank you. One of, the, one of the people they thanked or one of the groups they thanked were the local security forces in Xinjiang province um, that, uh, that were participating at that moment in, you know, ethnic cleansing, genocide, whatever you want to call it, um, of the Uyghur population in that province. And in fact, it turns out that a lot of the filming of, of the action of, of Milan was literally right next door to active concentration camps in which uh, Uyghurs were being, you know, to put a, a pretty firm stamp on this, being re-educated with this patriotic education uh, through hard labor and, and cultural deracination and all this kind of stuff. So this kind of ugly stuff that emerged that's, that's become very public. And these are absolutely important issues that deserve attention and condemnation. I mean, you know, you think about, uh, you know, since George Floyd, you know, all these corporations that have come out with these Black Lives Matter messages and you know pretty clearly they understand you know the commerce aspect of this that they need to at least make these these uh these statements to try to suggest their social justice uh you know concerns but those kind of social justice concerns seem pretty pale when the, the same companies are also you know doing business with concentration camps in, in xinjiang uh, like disney did like adidas seems to be doing as well uh with shoes being manufactured in these camps so those, I don't want to put aside those stories. We talked about those a little bit with, with my brother, Benno, a few weeks ago. But I want to talk about other aspects of the film as well and its story. Now, Chinese critics have noted, on the one hand, uh, there was a great article 
the other day that I think I put up on our, our Instagram feed that Chinese audience actually kind of hate Milan and it's it's received one of the lowest scores ever on the Chinese version of IMDb, which I found delightful. <laughs> um, and and so my favorite critique of it was uh, the, the way the, the film clumsily incorporates Chinese culture. And one reviewer compared it to General Tso's chicken. He says, quote, it is cooked in a wok and served with chopsticks, but that doesn't make it Chinese food. It uses our culture as a medium to convey their values. And I guess maybe that's the problem with having an entirely white production team and director making this film that's supposed to honor kind of Chinese culture and, and be sellable to a Chinese audience. Pretty weird, too. I mean, it's weird, too, isn't it, Josh? I don't mean to interrupt, but because uh, Disney is usually so sensitive, you know, oh, to, yeah, to yeah, ethnicity yeah. and tradition. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, go on the Jungle Cruise sometimes if you have any question about that. I was, I was just about to say that, um, you know, maybe it shouldn't be surprising the company that had Song of the South references on their theme parks for the past 70 years, um, you know, wasn't so culturally aware and didn't get these cultural elements quite right. Uh, but there's also a bigger issue that I want to get into that, that more firmly ties in with our, our topic for this week. And that has to do with the Milan story itself and, and what that these contemporary versions of the story do for this set of premises premises about Chinese history, um, you know, that they feed into a particular narrative. And it's a, it's ultimately the Milan story as it's told today in its, I think, 1998 version, the, the animated version, and also I think even more so in the, the current version, is they support an ethno-nationalist version of Chinese history. Um, and so it's, you know, this weird attempt by Disney to, to have it both ways, right? To sell to an American audience, but also make it kind of culturally acceptable to a Chinese audience. And in doing all these things, I mean, maybe it's going to satisfy an American audience. I don't know, you know, how, how Americans are responding necessarily, but it's tried to thread this needle. And what it's come up with is at the same time, a story that Chinese are not reacting to very well because of the clumsiness of these cultural elements, but which also tells this very useful story for the purposes of the Chinese state. Uh, and so it is a problematic movie in many ways and to get at that i want to talk a little bit about you know what the milan story was and and, and how it is um you've been so great at pointing out the problems with the nationalist narrative of US history as you just did and then as have you done over so many different episodes but that problem extends obviously beyond just our country that every country has their own kind of nationalist narrative and i want to throw out to you that you know is there some kind of process by which once we accept our own nationalist narratives do you think we're more likely to also kind of accept other countries' nationalist narratives as well? Does it kind of uh, train us to accept the nation once we've we've bought into our own national narrative? Well, I, I think it must, on some level, condition us to think that that's what history is, after all. Mm -hmm. And look, I mean, look at take a look at any textbook, and and uh, you know whether it be, uh, and I can only guess, uh, you know what. Uh, so what passes for Chinese textbooks, you know, in, in Chinese schools, you know, Benno, Benno or Vincent or somebody could tell us. But uh, I, mean, I think it's safe to say, don't you, that that all it takes is a brief glance at the table of contents, you know, of what, what passes for the national history textbook in virtually any country is going to be organized along roughly similar lines. I mean, the content, the, the, the who, what, where, and when will be necessarily different, of course, but not the essential emplotment, you know, not the framing uh, that the nation itself provides. And I know you have some really cool things to say about that. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point that it we're, we do get, I mean, it's the same narrative everywhere, right? The, the details are, are different, but the same narrative 
everywhere. The table contents are going to look the same. We don't know if does every country have their own Howard Zinn version? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But um, does every country have their own hag? I think more is the more important question. Well, you know, in all, in all, all seriousness, I mean, because that, that look, I mean, I mean, when we worry about when Benno worries about, you know, his colleagues in China or friends of his, you know, g- getting in trouble, you know, and, yeah. and being sent to some kind of, you know, camp or re-education camp or prison or something, you know, um, there is. And we said this at the beginning of the episode today. There is a kind of decidedly serious, you know, consequential aspect to all this. Yeah, as I, I think I th- said in an earlier episode, if history didn't matter, then people like Xi Jinping and Donald Trump wouldn't try so hard to control it, right? To control those narratives. So, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it must matter, right? Yep. They seem to think it's important, so exactly. we should think it's important. Our students should think it's important as well. Right. Um, so I, Milan is really an instructive example in what we called in that last episode with Benno, weaponizing history. The way that history can be used to serve the purposes of power because if you read the actual poem that it's based on, the, the Bow de Milan, um, which comes from, you know, sometime between the 4th and the 6th century CE, the story is very different than what we get from uh, these contemporary readings or retellings of that narrative. And I'm, I'm, I'm basing a lot of this on a piece written by a Chinese scholar named James Millward, who's actually done a lot of work on kind of Chinese Central Asia and Xinjiang in particular. Uh, we will post that, that article because it, it's really a great... Um, you know, telling of, of these issues. I'm going to talk about the, the Ballad of Milan in a second, which is the, the story from which all these later versions come. But I want to say a little bit about the story that is kind of come across to us through popular culture. Um, this is the one that's, you know, been told to us by Disney. And then there's there's obviously a lot of Chinese versions of this story as well. But in, in the popular culture version from, you know, 1998, and the Disney version uh, more recently as well, the, the general account is one in which uh, the Chinese, and it's kind of vague about when in Chinese history this is, the Chinese are threatened by, uh, by the Huns, quote-unquote. Uh, the Huns are advancing and they're threatening China, and so the emperor calls for soldiers to help defeat uh, this existential threat of a Hun invasion. Mulan is the daughter in a family that um, who's the, her father cannot serve because he's old and uh, infirm, I believe. I don't remember exactly, but he, he can't serve. So she decides to basically run away from home and take his place. Right? To, uh, every family is supposed to provide one soldier. And so she can become the soldier. And then, you know, very much the Chinese takeaway from this, and, and this is, I think, mimicked in these Disney versions as well, at least uh, the, the previous Disney version is, quote, sacrifice yourself, enlist for your father and serve your country. So there's this the sense of duty that comes across to it from it, the sense of filial piety, and the sense of patriotism that uh, is going to come across from that 1998 version. But uh, I think that also is pretty similar to a lot of Chinese versions as well. One of the critiques, actually, of the, of the more recent one is that it has changed that message into a much more kind of westernized, individualistic message of uh, you know how individual heroism can save the day. And that sense of duty and that kind of stuff has been kind of lost in it. But But aside from that, you know, the, the story then ends, ends up being this girl who, you know, does what she has to do. And this is a far cry from what the Ballad of Milan was really originally about, at least according to some authors, some, some, uh, some scholars. One scholar, for instance, has noted that, quote, Milan is not originally a story about a patriotic Chinese woman. It's not a story about self-sacrifice to def- defend one's country. It is not a thrilling tale of martial valor. It is rather a commentary on the fruitlessness of war 
against people who are more like oneself than different, delivered in the voice of a woman who does her familial duty out of necessity and then chucks her medals and goes home. A war-weary expression of truth to power. We heard uh, Howard Zinn talk earlier about how too many of our heroes are, you know, military heroes, and too few of them are the people who kind of stand up to that. And, you know, this kind of fits into that because you take this story, which is, you know, very, very, um, in, in the Battle of Milan, at least according to, to one scholar, is very dismissive of, of war and the glory that comes from war uh, in the original story. As, as this guy says, Milan doesn't want honor from this, doesn't want medals from this, doesn't want rewards from this. But the whole story is just about the futility of this whole thing, uh, how warfare does not solve any problems. And uh, the story ends up being even kind of a tragedy, even as Milan is heroic in the original version as well. It's not a heroic story because of the fruitlessness of these kinds of wars. To get to the, the origins of the Battle of Milan, we don't have the exact origins. It seems to first emerge during the Northern Wei Dynasty, which existed in, as the name suggests, Northern China, or what's now Northern China. And they ruled between the 4th and the 6th century CE. And the significance of this is that the Northern Wei Dynasty came about at a time in which um, China was, or you know, what we now think of as China, was ruled by many different dynasties. And a lot of those dynasties were ruled by people who were not part of the kind of Chinese cultural milieu. Right? They didn't speak Chinese, for instance. The rulers of the Northern Wei uh, were Altaic speakers, speakers of Altaic languages. Uh, and so Altaic uh, languages include Mongolian, for instance. So Central Asian languages are often Altaic languages. Specifically, the founders of the Northern Wei were of the Toba clan of the Shanbei people. In other words, they were the very barbarians that later versions of the story claim Milan was helping protect China from. So right away, we get this very important problem that uh, the story Milan has become the story of a patriotic Chinese girl, you know, putting aside, uh, you know, all these other things going on and, and striving to help her nation, help her country from the invasion of, uh, to defend their country from the invasion of these barbarian hordes. And it turns out the actual story um, as James Millward said, Milan was more Hun than Han. That she didn't even, you know, she wouldn't have been qualified as, quote, Chinese in modern Chinese ethnic terms. So suffice to say, this difference is very meaningful. The Northern Way are this incredible example of cultural hybridization, um, of the way that cultures do not, in fact, represent impermeable and immutable sets of qualities that naturally divide people, one people from another. There's a part in the poem that towards the end, I don't want to give, spoil it or anything like that, but Milan comes back from, uh, from this war she's uh, taken part in. And in the, in the poem, her brother has a knife and he's going to slaughter a pig and a sheep. Um, and it's so interesting because the pig is a kind of more traditional, you know, Chinese meat. Uh, pigs are not good on open plains, right? You got to kind of keep pigs close to home, where sheep were one of the primary animals of nomadic herders. And so just in that, that uh, decision to slaughter a sheep and a pig, you get a, a, an example of this cultural hybridization, right? Of the fact that what we're seeing in Northern China was not, you know, one culture dominating, but this interesting mix of multiple cultures, a multi-ethnic North, as some Chinese scholars refer to this, this time and, and this, this region. Um, James Millward also uh, tells the story of a student of his who was Uyghur, and um, she told a story about, about Milan and her own relationship with Milan. And so Millward says, As a girl, my student had loved and identified with the spunky heroine of the first Disney Milan, until her mother told her, Our ancestors aren't Milan. Our ancestors are the Huns. 
Given the atavistic, as he continues, given the atavistic Disney portrayal of the Hun ruler, Shan Yu, as squat, ugly, and evil, leading his hordes in a swarm of the passes to imperil Milan and her people, this revelation came as a shock to my student. In portraying Shan Yu this way and transferring the same imagery and Fu Manchu mustache to the swarthy Ruran, who are the people that are identified in the, the, the new remake, uh, the swarthy Ruran commander and his black-clad Myrmidons in the live-action movie, Disney resurrects standard racist tropes by which European sources have portrayed inner Asian steppe nomads since Roman times. It's no wonder my Uyghur student was upset. So this is, you know, another example of, you know, Disney is trying to do this thing where they're uh, trying to be culturally sensitive to a Chinese audience, try to win over their approval. And in doing so, what they've done is presented a bunch of racist stereotypes of the sort that they would never be able to get away with for an American audience using kind of American history at this point, as I said. There were Song of the South references at Disneyland until like last year, um, but they would never try to get away with that now because they understand how it would go over um, in, in this country, I think generally. But what they've done is reproduce some of those same racist tropes in a movie set in China. So I want to throw out a question to you as I kind of wrap up here or get to my conclusion. Do you see why a version of the story, of the Milan story, that reimagines it from a, a story of a woman from a culturally diverse, hybridized environment, unglamorously, as she does in the original Ballad of Milan, answering the call for soldiers. Um, and by the way, in the original version, the emperor is, is designated as Kagan, or Kagan, which means Great Khan. So he's referenced by a kind of Central Asian nomadic title as opposed to this Chinese imperial title. Again, getting into the hybridization here. So you take that, that unglamorous story of, of this woman from this culturally diverse, hybridized environment, and you turn it into a patriotic tale of a woman helping defend her country from the existential threat of a horde of foreign barbarians. Do you see why that might be problematic to make that change? Yeah, and seriously, um, one of the many reasons would be is because it helps us not even a little try to resolve the problems that China modern China uh, currently confronts, particularly with people like the Uyghurs, right? In other words, mm -hmm. how, how does that in any way begin to seriously resolve uh, the autonomy, uh, need for autonomy, uh, identity, even ethnic identity of those uh, Muslim peoples on that Western boundary, you know, uh, of China? It doesn't. It, it just, it simply creates a silence where that problem, it seems to me, Josh, has to be confronted in honest and sober terms. Yeah, and you know, the Uyghurs have gotten a lot of attention, but the, we're seeing, starting to see similar things happening with the Mongol populations in Northern China as well, in Inner Mongolia and, and elsewhere, where they're also being uh, increasingly told to, to give up on their, the, their own languages and adopt uh, Mandarin as, as their, their main languages. And so it tells a story that feeds into that national narrative that to be Chinese, means these things, right? That this multi-ethnic China, which has always exi existed, there's never been a homogenous China in history, what films like Milan do, uh, what Chinese patriotic education tends to do is it paints over that. And in fact, I mentioned the Northern Wei Kingdom earlier. The Northern Wei Kingdom has been uh, assimilated into Chinese history. That this complex story of this multi-ethnic North, it's just become a kingdom that's part of a larger Chinese history in the patriotic education that the Chinese receive. And so even the significance of the multi-ethnicity of, of China has been kind of papered over. You know, as much as it's problematic, you know, in the Chinese context to tell a story of this, uh, this woman helping defend her country from these foreigners who cross a border, who sometimes have to get around a wall 
as dangerous as that is for Chinese history, it's not a great message in American history right now either, is it? <laughs> no, it isn't. And, and it gets back to the idea of what, you know, what these national narratives, these nation state frames create with regard to not only boundaries, but also then walls and security and force and mm-hmm. the marginalizing of minority populations. Yeah, issues of purity as well, like this kind mm-hmm. of ethnic purity. Um, so it's, it's ugly stuff coming off, out in what's, you know, ostensibly a children's movie. You know, and a lot of, a lot of the way that these premise, you know, the, the premise that, that um, Howard Zinn talked about we have to challenge, a lot of the way those, we, you know, we see those, those premises mm-hmm. is in stuff like this. It's, it comes through stuff like George Bancroft, of course. It comes through public education. But we shouldn't um, underrate how important just popular culture is in getting these narratives across to us and making them seem natural and make them seem a, a part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in many ways, it's an even more powerful force of that patriotic education that Donald Trump and Xi Jinping are so concerned with mm-hmm. um, than the schools where um, you know people listen or don't listen uh, according to their own their own whims. But what you see on that screen has a lot of impact on the way people think about their world, even if they don't understand. And I think this is why it's so powerful because mm-hmm. they don't even know they're being propagandized in many cases when they get these messages. They just kind of take it as a basic premise. That this is how things were. This is what yeah. we should be afraid of. This is who we are. Um, so this is dangerous stuff. It is, and it's a, it's a sexy come on for sure because it appeals to all those uh, you know, there's emotional impulses, you know, the things that our yeah. species, we're the storytelling animal after all, you know, the things that we crave, you know, in those story forms of, you know, um, underdogs overcoming the odds, you know, and if you make it in the form of a young girl who becomes a woman warrior type, then all the more, you know, impassioned does the narrative itself become. And yeah, and as you point out, if you can associate that, if you can identify that with the claims of power, the sovereignty, uh, including the uh, you know the security systems etc. that govern modern nations, then you've uh, gone a long way toward you know achieving those ends of of the nation state for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will just you know can kind of finish this up here. I, I've referenced James C. Scott a number of times. Mm-hmm. I think we both have in in uh, in uh, these these episodes. But one of the, one of the points he makes that has just kind of stuck with me. And it kind of relates back to Milan and relates to the way this popular culture presents, as you call it, the sovereignty mm-hmm. issue is that, um, you know, ultimately in the end of, of the Milan story, she saves the emperor. Mm. And the idea, why should we cheer the saving? Of, why do we care if the emperor survives? Why are we rooting for the emperor? Right. You know, so the, the way it kind of manipulates us into supporting power, supporting that power structure is another kind of nefarious element of all this stuff. And, uh, you know, gets into those assumptions we bring in and that our, our societies mm-hmm. want us to bring into the into these stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you just came up with an even better title for the episode, actually, Rooting for the Emperor. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Hey. Too late to go back now, though. Hey. And, and there's a reason why we call this History Against the Grain, friends, you know, is because our whole approach from the first episode till now and going forward, I imagine, uh, will be to offer an alternative not just an alternative, though, but one that cuts against the grain of that, uh, you know, that 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 systemic use of power, you know, by elites uh, to fashion, among other things, you know, the story of who we are and who we're supposed to be and where we're supposed to be going. 
You know, I've often said, Josh, you know, the, the idea that the American national story is that, you know, not to worry. Uh, the the history is going in the, dire- the right direction here, right? You mm-hmm. know, but what history against the grain suggests is no, it isn't. Uh, because we can't resolve the problems that confront us. And these are these are very serious things we've lived with now for six months, a front row seat right out our window, you know, of the logical inconsistencies of of this system now coming to the fore once again you know bubbling to the surface in some very powerful and unmistakable ways so yeah when friends when we say history against the grain with all due uh, respect to mr disney's company you know we're we're talking about a, a narrative that not only upsets that that comfortable narrative stance but offers real and healthy i would add uh, stories uh, and alternatives in 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 its place. In other words, we're, we're we're not just singing another version of the song of the South, Josh. We're actually trying to problem solve, uh, you know, this situation we've gotten ourselves into. Great way to end it there. It's so good to be back on Hag. I feel mm-hmm. better about myself. Feel better about the world now. Somehow, having spoken to you for the last hour and twenty minutes or so. Um, so hopefully you guys enjoyed this. I would uh, urge you to check us out on social media. We have our Instagram account at uh, H-I-S-T-A-T-G and our Twitter account, our underused Twitter account is also the same address at H-I-S-T-A-T-G. So please check us out there. Hit us up with questions or comments or suggestions in those places. Nice ones, hopefully. And we will be talking to you again next week. Take care. It's a sin when you play into ignorance Another one closing your eyes again So you don't have to see what's happening Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV Stop sucking a cycle, so we repeat